Now I will read the passage from the Gospel of Mark, which is the text for the sermon Will Downey is about to preach. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they begin, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing with one another the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve? And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven? And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Will Downey. I'm the director of student ministries here at the barn. I love Jesus. I despise tests that are supposed to tell you about your life. Whether those are job placement tests, those answer 10 questions to find out which Disney princess you are type tests, personality tests. I found that every personality test I take is usually not much more than 50% accurate in describing me. But the worst culprit among these are the spiritual gift surveys. Whenever I take a spiritual gift test uh, to find out what I'm supposed to be, well, what, what God has gifted me, and I find out my answers are always skewed toward just whatever I'm actually doing at the time I take the test, the only constant when I take these tests is that evangelism and faith are most certainly not my spiritual gifts. Now, I'm... Uh, a little embarrassed to admit it given my role here at the barn, but I'm not normally a walk-by-faith type person. Uh, I like plans. I like strategies. I like thinking through the details to get from point A to point B. I like, I like all of that. Resting and knowing that God is going to meet my needs sounds really good until I have to do it. When I was in college, I attended Liberty University. That's the world's most exciting university and the largest evangelical school on the planet. At least that's what the administration always told us. In my second year, I had the role of a prayer leader in my dorm. I led a group of five guys 
and made sure that their spiritual, emotional, and physical needs were met. I prayed for them every day, and we did a Bible study together every week. One of the guys in my small group was named Leroy. Not really, though. Names in the story have been changed, yada, yada, yada. Leroy was a Chinese exchange student, and oddly enough for somebody attending a Christian university, Leroy was not a Christian. And God really burdened me with reaching out to him. I longed for Leroy to know the love that God had for him and the life that Leroy could have in Jesus. I felt that God was urging me to get him a Bible so that we could read it together and we could talk through his word. And I knew that he had zero interest in reading the Bible, but he did have an interest in learning the English language. He was struggling to learn English. And so I figured if I got him a Bible that had both Chinese and English in it, it's called an interlinear, uh, he would absorb it. So I checked online, and at the time, one of those would set me back 50 bucks. Now, $50 doesn't sound like a large sum of money, but as a stereotypical poor college student, I didn't have that level of margin in my budget. I felt sure that God wanted me to get this for Leroy, but I didn't have the means to do it. I wonder if you've ever been there. You believe that God has called you to earmark a certain portion of your income to give to his work, but then an unexpected bill comes. Maybe you feel led to volunteer in a certain ministry, but then you look at your calendar and there's just not space for another thing. Maybe you feel like God has convicted you to visit a friend who's going through a difficult time, but then at the end of the workday, you just don't have the energy for another thing. The Bible claims that God will supply all our needs. It's Philippians 4.19. And that is God provides for the needs of the flowers and the animals he's made. He will even more so provide for our needs. It's in Matthew 6. And yet we still struggle with fear, with anxiety, and with doubt. We talk a big game when things are going smooth. But when tough times come, why don't we trust that God will provide what we need? Well, Mike was reading from our text this morning, Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21. You can turn there if you've not yet done so. And in our passage, we're going to see two different reasons why people don't provide, uh, why people don't uh, trust that God will provide for their needs. And then our text is going to leave us with an encouragement. So we'll see two reasons why we question God's provision and then an encouragement. The first reason why some of us don't trust that God will provide for our needs is because we simply don't believe that he can. For some of us, we don't believe that God can or will provide when push comes to shove. In the first couple verses, Jesus makes this odd statement about Pharisees and about leaven that makes little sense without context. So I'm going to be pushing it back a little bit. We'll begin in the beginning of chapter 8, where Jesus feeds 4,000 people using seven loaves of bread. Everyone eats, and there are seven baskets full of food left over. Now, quick math will tell you that seven loaves of bread divided 4,000 ways gives you 0.175% a loaf of bread per person. And that hardly seems like a satisfactory meal. It's like when we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And all that's being served is a little corner of a cracker and a sub-shot glass portion of unfermented wine. 
not very filling. Maybe we should call it the Lord's snack. (laughs) But verse 8 clarifies that everyone ate until they were fully satisfied. This is a miracle. This is God working outside of the normal confines of the physical universe. Just as God provided manna for the Israelites to eat after they left Egypt, Jesus was showing that he had the ability to provide for the needs of his followers in the wilderness. What's more, there are baskets full of bread left over. Miracles done. Jesus and his posse, they get in their boat, they go to their next place. And the very next verse, the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders in Israel, they come out to meet Jesus. Now I've done some travel, and I'm convinced that with a, with a, with a baby, traveling by train is the most convenient way to do any trip that's longer than five hours. It's great. You can stand up, you can walk around, you can go to the bathroom, and no matter what you do, you're always moving towards your destination. So we travel Amtrak quite a bit when we go to visit my wife's family. And when we get there, her family will pick us up, and when we return, my sister usually picks us up in Hartford. And it's so nice seeing a friendly face after a day of travel. But what the Pharisees doing is not that. They were not coming out to greet Jesus. They were coming out to test him. They were coming out to prove to themselves and to others that Jesus was a fraud. They asked him to give them irrefutable signs from heaven that he was indeed a messenger from God. And their request is not unreasonable. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, it commands that Israel would verify a prophet's message because they didn't want false teachers running around and lying about what God said, and so it commanded them that they ask for signs. But what did Jesus just do? And what did he been doing for the last seven verses of Mark? He's been healing lepers. He's been making paralyzed people to walk again. He's been casting out demons. He's been looking at a raging storm and telling it to calm down successfully. The Bible says that in answer to their uh, question, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, coming off a series of weekend-long youth retreats, I think I, think I can almost feel that. <laughs> Sometimes the best thing that you can do is just take a good... <sighs> and after a cathartic sigh, Jesus says that no sign is going to be given to this generation. He does not conjure up a kraken to satisfy their desire. Now, is Jesus anti-sign? Is he not following God's commands to the prophets found in the Old Testament? Well, not at all. But recognizing that their request came from minds that were already resolute in their disbelief, Jesus makes no attempt to prove himself again. With nothing worth staying for, Jesus and his followers, they get in their boat, and Mark adds the detail that his followers forgot to pack any supplies. He only had one loaf of bread, to share 13 ways. Forgetting to pack snacks is not a cardinal sin. I believe it should be. (laughs) But coming off of this exasperating run-in with the Pharisees, Jesus, the master teacher, capitalized an opportunity to teach his disciples something. He warns his followers to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, most Fridays, my wife and I enjoy making our own pizza. There is 
picture of one of ours. Mine is a chicken bacon barbecue pizza. My wife is something inferior to that. <laughs> we love making pizza. We've been doing it almost as long as we've been married. And in all of that time, I, have, I think I've only forgotten one of the core ingredients once. I uh, forgot to put in salt. It didn't turn out very well. But one ingredient that I would never forget when putting uh, together these pizza is the leavening agent, or the yeast. Because though it's one of the smallest quantity of things that we add, it's what makes the dough edible. Other ingredients you can add in later, like the flour, the oil. If you have an oops, you can put in a little bit more. But the yeast needs to be there from the very beginning. Um, in preparation for this sermon and experimentation purposes, I considered not adding the yeast to one of our pizza doughs, but then I realized, as much as I love you guys, it's not worth it. <laughs> so sorry to anyone who would have benefited from that knowledge. In addition to leaven's role in cooking, in the first century, leaven was often associated metaphorically with sinful behaviors and attitudes that permeated an individual and society and corrupted it. The sinful things that we do and that we think, the way that it has more far-reaching impact than just the thought, the word, the action. And the object lesson there writes itself. So when Jesus is telling the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, he was cautioning them against this hard-hearted disbelief that required additional signs if I'm going to follow God. The Pharisees did that in this passage. Herod, we see that in Luke 23. Ironically, those who followed Jesus saw many signs to verify their faith in him, while those who demanded these signs up front got none. The leaven of the Pharisees was a front-end rejection of Jesus and his ability to meet their needs. And sadly, many people today do not believe that Jesus will come through for them. This is a hard-lined rejection of Jesus' power and his character they dismiss the Bible as outdated collection of fairy tales, and they relegate the teaching of Jesus to wise moral philosophy at best. There's a God who created the universe and wants to have a relationship with me? Fat chance. A sky fairy who meets the greatest needs of my life? Yeah. Keep dreaming. Now, certainly non-Christians fall in this category— However, there are some Christians as well who often because of difficult life circumstances have found themselves here as well. Maybe they trust in Jesus for salvation from hell, but when it comes to any other needs, it's up to me, myself, and I to provide. That self-reliant attitude is very American. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it's not the attitude that followers of Jesus are called to. The Pharisees and Herod, they had made up their mind that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, and therefore he would not and he could not provide for everyone's needs. But there's another group in this passage who questioned Jesus' ability to provide for entirely different reasons. And this group hits a little closer to home for me. The second reason why we don't trust that God will provide for our needs is that we don't understand who he is or how he's working. In Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes comics, there is this running gag about a noodle incident. And though it's never shown, Calvin will frequently shout out, the noodle incident wasn't my fault, or I've been framed. 
There's one strip where his parents come back from a parent-teacher conference, and he blurts out, she didn't tell you about the noodle incident, did she? Which his parents say, what noodle incident? And he has to backtrack. Guilt has a way of sticking around and consuming our thoughts, and I think that this phenomenon is at work when Jesus talks about leaven. His followers are guilty that they forgot to pack provisions. And so when Jesus starts talking about leaven, they assume that he's calling them out for a forgetful oversight. They completely miss the point that Jesus is trying to make about a hard-hearted disbelief. But Jesus, always the master teacher, seizes on this opportunity as well to create another teachable moment. He quotes this idea that's found in the prophetic writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. You have eyes to see, but you do not see. You have ears to hear, but you do not hear. Both in the original and in Jesus' usage, this phrase indicates that people would experience God's powerful hand of provision, and yet they'd fail to understand God's character behind it. They see an event, but they miss the implications for their life. Referring to his most recent miracle, Jesus has the disciples run him through what had happened. I had 5,000 loaves of bread, 5,000 people and five loaves of bread. And what happened there? Well, we, uh, we fed everyone and we had 12 uh, baskets of bread left over. That's right, that's right. Uh, and there were 4,000 people. This was just the other day. And we had only had seven loaves of bread. And how did that one play out? Well, uh, we, uh, we fed everyone and we had seven baskets of food left over. Jesus' final question goes without an answer. Do you not yet understand? Time and time again, Jesus met his followers' needs, but every time they're put into a new circumstance, they develop a case of spiritual amnesia. Now, tone is important. It doesn't translate very well. So a lot of times when I read this final question that Jesus asked, I read it with uh, a tone of exasperation because that's what I, the reader, am feeling towards his disciples. Uh, there are times when I'm feeling down on myself, my own shortfallings in my Christian walk, and when I read it then, sometimes I read it with a, a tone of disappointment. I'm guessing that Jesus' words actually held a much more lovingly patient tone. Because unlike the Pharisees, Jesus' followers were not coming at this issue, their lack of food, from a place of rejecting Jesus. They had seen his miracles. They believed that he was the Messiah come to save the world. They trusted him, but their head knowledge was not fully integrated into their emotional response. What they knew to be true, what they believed, was not affecting how they were interacting in this situation. Of course, they knew he could feed thousands more. They'd seen it, but that was in the past. Would he really do it again? And these circumstances are different. They're on a boat now. Do you think that food multiplying trick still works if we're on a boat? Though we don't like to admit it, many of us struggle to understand how God's going to come through for us. We have faith in Jesus. We trust God. We know that he's good. We know that he loves us. We believe that he can meet our needs, but we struggle to see how. This is the same quality of unbelief as the Pharisees. I don't think belief is something that you either have or you don't have. Rather, I think it's helpful to see belief on a spectrum. On the one hand, you do have that hard-hearted disbelief of the Pharisees. On the other hand, you have a 100% 
confident, I'm just going to freely do one of those trust falls. But there is room between the two. And I think most Christians who struggle with unbelief are more in line with the Father from Mark 9. When Jesus asks him, do you believe that I can heal your son? The desperate father answers very honestly, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I trust you, God, but I struggle to understand. I know that you can provide a job for me, but what if you don't? I have faith that you'll use my efforts, but what if this is all just a waste of time? I want to believe that there is a purpose in my pain, but how could there be when I've lost so much? When we have an imperfect faith that's seeking understanding, I think that's something that God can work with. So I said that there would be two reasons why we question God's provision followed by an encouragement. And we saw that sometimes we don't believe that God can or will provide. Other times we don't understand how it's all going to work out. So there are two reasons. If you're following along uh, in the scripture, you'll find that we've run out of verses and there is not an encouragement in sight. Well, the encouragement from our text is left unstated, but it's nevertheless there. Whether you struggle with understanding who God is, what he's doing, or you straight up disbelieve that God can do it, God is still God. God is still loving. God is still powerful. And he will accomplish his purpose. Neither his macro plan, big picture, nor the smaller day-to-day work is going to be derailed by our frailty. Look at those who refuse to believe in Jesus and to trust his ability to meet their needs. The religious and the political leaders, they rejected that Jesus was God and they put him to death. They killed the Messiah who the world had been waiting for for over a thousand years. And what came of this? Well, their unbelief and their following actions led to Jesus' defeat of sin on the cross, his resurrection, defeating death, and now eternal salvation to all those who put their faith in him. Their lack of belief did not derail God's macro plan for redemption, but in his sovereignty, it became part of that plan. They didn't derail God's plan, but he used their actions, evil as they were, to further what he was doing. Unless we think God is only safeguarding the really important stuff, a brief overview of Mark is going to show that his work continues unabated in day-to-day matters as well. There are three prominent boat rides in Mark 1 through 8. We've looked at one this morning where the disciples, they're concerned that they don't have food and they reveal their lack of understanding and who Jesus is and what he's capable of. But there were two before it. His followers don't have a very good track record on boats. In chapter 4, they're caught in a storm and they fear they're going to die. Frantic, they run to Jesus and they wake him up. He had the audacity to go to sleep in the middle of a torrential storm. And then they see their master successfully tell the weather to cut it out. Later, chapter 6, they're caught in a storm, this time without Jesus. And they fear again that they're going to be killed. And here comes Jesus to the rescue, walking on the water and pulling Peter out of the sea. They don't understand who Jesus is in either of these cases, but they never sink. They never drown. They never starve. God has a plan, 
that included each of those disciples and their inability to understand the scale and the scope of that plan did not forfeit it. Now at this point, if I was sitting in the congregation and not preaching, I would be asking, well, if God's going to do what God's going to do, what's the point of my actions? Am I just some fatalistic cog predestined to turn in my section of the machine until time immemorial? Anyone else? No? Is that just me? Okay. Uh, Before we fall too far down the nihilistic rabbit hole, Mark 6-5 makes an interesting statement about the effects of unbelief. Jesus has been making his rounds in various towns, performing signs and miracles until he gets to his hometown of Nazareth. No one wants to listen to the snot-nosed son of the carpenter who was born out of wedlock. I don't think anybody was believing Mary's virgin birth story. And as a result, verses 5 to 6 read that Jesus could do no mighty works there, except that he laid a hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Scripture says he could do no mighty, miraculous works there. Our trust, or lack thereof, does have an effect on the world. Now, God's never going to break out in a dry sweat and be like, oh no, she did what? My plans are ruined! But he does have a wonderful plan for each and every one of your lives. And we experience the abundance of that plan when we are faithfully walking in step with him. Our unbelief does cause us to miss out on some of the joy, some of the fullness of walking with Jesus. So the encouragement from our text is not that our belief and our understanding don't matter. It's that when we're weak, God remains faithful. Picking up the tragedy of the Chinese Bibles, when last we saw a broke college version of myself, I was despondent. God had been calling me to get a Bible for someone which I didn't have the means to buy. Next day, I was with a buddy of mine at Subconnections, That's the Liberty off-brand version of Subway that's actually, I think, better. And I was telling my friend the whole story as I told it to you. I wanted to talk to Leroy about the things of God. He had an interest in learning English. There's an interlinear Bible that that could work out, but its price tag was such that I couldn't buy it. As I'm nearing the end of my tale, a man behind us in line taps me on the shoulder and says, I didn't mean to overhear a conversation, and I don't normally do this, but I have a ton of Chinese Bibles available if you want one. I was <laughs> floored, and I was grateful. But remember, Leroy wouldn't read his Bible unless it could further his ability to speak English. Thanks, I replied, but there really was a very specific type of Chinese Bible that I was looking for. The man pulled out his phone, He brought up a picture. He said, is this similar? And on the screen, there was the exact Chinese-English interlinear Bible that I had been looking for online. I run a ministry to Chinese students, and we use these Bibles to teach them English while also talking about God's Word. You're welcome to have one if it would help, he told me. I was dumbfounded. I was at college. I was studying God's character and his power, but seeing the specificity of this request being answered, this provision, astounded me. I could almost hear God's spirit whisper to me, 
Do you not yet understand? My understanding was weak in that moment, but God was still faithful to provide everything that I needed to do what he had called me to. Though we're prone to be faithless, to be fearful, or to fall short, God is still in control. As I was preparing for this sermon, I started racking my brain for some way that I could help all of you believe and to understand that God is going to meet the needs of your heart and the needs of your life. How do you help a person trust God? And then it came to me. It is not in my power to help you understand or to believe in God, but it is in His. So I want to challenge you to look for how God provides in your daily life. Two Fridays ago, I began keeping a needs journal on the notes app of my phone, but paper would work just as well. At the start of each day, I make a log of all of the needs that I think I'm going to have for the day. Some of them are things that I need to do. Finish writing my sermon. Some of things are attitudes that I need to have. Last Sunday was the final day of the week-long youth retreat. Weekend long. Not that great. Uh, So I wrote patience. And I wrote spiritual discernment to see which conversations I need to have with the students. Some of the things that I wrote down were relational. I need to have quality time with Jeanette and my son William. And starting off the day by thinking of what needs I had set me up to see how God was going to provide throughout the day. Sometimes as the day went on, needs cropped up that I was, oh, I didn't, know this, I didn't know this was a need, but it is. So I'd write them down as well. And then at the end of the day, I'd look over my list. And this was always just a super worshipful experience. I would see there were some needs that I thought I needed to have met, and I saw them met exactly how I expected. There were other needs that I had that God met, but not in ways that I expected. And then there were things on my list that sometimes did not happen. But I'm here, and I'm still okay. And God showed me that some of the things that I thought were hard needs were not actually. He had a bigger and a better plan in mind. On that youth retreat, on the final day, when I wrote patience, students were playing games, and I was talking to them, some of the guys, and I started backing away from them, and I turned around, and bam! smashed my face headlong into a support beam that was hanging down from the ceiling. And in my tiredness and in my pain, I shouted out a profanity that is not my proudest or my most patient moment. So I thought that I needed patience, but God had humility on the menu instead. (laughs) I had to admit to the guys that I'd lost my temper and used a word that I shouldn't have in my anger. And maybe God's going to use that example to teach the students patience as well. Or maybe they're just going to see what their leader did and start using it in youth group. Who's to know? (laughs) But God met a need that I was not thinking of through not meeting a need that I thought I had. I don't think I'm going to continue doing the needs journal every day into eternity, but it was an incredibly eye-opening exercise to do for a week. And so I want to challenge you to give that a try. I learned a lot about God, myself, my needs, and I do believe that I'll do it again. Sometimes we don't believe that God will come through. Sometimes we don't understand how he will come through. Yet in his way and in his time, he always does.